This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book. The series dealing with the book of the Revelation, the number is number nine. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture, and if those of you who are listening care to join us, will you switch off and read together with us Jeremiah chapter 50. Those of you who have joined in reading this 50th chapter of Jeremiah must be conscious that it is no easy passage. And yet there are features in it that if we have them in the back of our mind it will make the interpretation of some parts of the book of the Revelation a bit more clear and incisive. First of all, chapter 50, verse 1. Is Babylon just a name that you can tack onto anything? But it says this is in the land of the Chaldeans. And it says it more than once. And Chaldea is a definite geographical spot. And Babylon is a city in Chaldea. So that you see, whatever you do with this word, it nevertheless is challenging us to consider that very city. And we'll have to look at that a bit more carefully. And then you will notice in verse 4 that in those days the children of Israel are going to return weeping and confessing and entering into a covenant that they shall not break or be forgotten. And further, it says in verse 20, In those days and at that time, saith the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought and there shall be none. Well, that hasn't taken place yet. So this is future. So now that's bringing together two thoughts. The destruction of Babylon and the return of Israel with, as a pardoned people belong to the same period. So there's no good putting one in the distant past and then trying to tack it onto something that yet must be. And then you will see an emphasis upon the fact that it's the day of the Lord's vengeance. Now, we mustn't emphasize one side only. That is to get distortion. The day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed is come. They are the two that go together. And the more we put these in their proper place, the more we shall see that the whole Bible is a conflict between two gigantic systems represented by two cities. Not that the cities themselves necessarily are wrong, but what the cities stand for and why they were started. And these two cities enter into the story in the book of Genesis and their influence is there right the way through every book in the Bible till you get to the book of the Revelation and they come to the great conflict at the time of the end. And great Babylon at last comes in for judgment and then passes away with hallelujahs. And there's a new Jerusalem and a new heaven and a new earth and God writes no more over all the things that have been associated with Babylon and Babel and Babylonianism from the beginning of time. So there's many things in this and the next chapter, I didn't ask you to read Jeremiah 51 in case there was a riot, uh, but I would suggest to you that we've only read half of it. And by the time you read 51, you will have a great deal of information with regard to this place called Babylon. And I'm going to read the last few verses of chapter 51. Verse 60. So Jeremiah wrote in a book all the evil that should come upon Babylon, even all these words that are written against Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Sariah, When thou comest to Babylon, and shalt see, and shalt read all these words, then shalt thou say, O Lord, 
Thou hast spoken against this place to cut it off, that none shall remain in it, neither man nor beast, but that it shall be desolate forever. And it shall be when thou shalt make an end of reading this book, that thou shalt bind a stone to it and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates, and thou shalt say, Thus shall Babylon sink, and shall not rise from the evil that I will bring upon her, and they shall be weary. And you'll find those words are echoed in the book of the Revelation. Well now we turn to that last book of the Bible which is still before us and I'm dealing particularly this evening with this place that Babylon occupies in the scheme of things. First of all, there are one or two features in the um, chapter 13 that um, we shall have to consider but for the moment let's look at the the uh, reference to Babylon that starts in chapter 17. There came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying, Come unto me, come, uh, said unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Now listen to those words, and then turn to chapter 21, verse 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked to me saying, Come hither. Would you say you're reading the same verse? Oh no, I'm reading another chapter. Come hither. I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. You've got the two there. Both represented by women. One, the chaste bride, the other, a foul harlot. Both decked with gold and pearls and colours And there you've got the story. Babylon is the great travesty of truth. And Babylon has permeated society and philosophy and religion and doctrine and teaching. And it's not found only in the Roman Catholic Church. Babylonianism is found in the Protestants as well. I wouldn't say that it's not amongst us too. But each one of us have got remnants of tradition about us that we are hardly suspect. And so this is coming right out into the daylight now and Babylon has to be dealt with and destroyed. Now, when do we read about the beginning of Babylon? Well, we read of it in the book of Genesis. And where do we read about the beginning of Jerusalem? We read of it in the book of Genesis. So should we just glimpse at those two passages to see the beginnings and then we come to this Book, we come to the end. Now the, Bab- the, book, the Bible itself comes into light in the 11th chapter, the 10th and the 11th chapters of the book of Genesis. In the 10th chapter we have the various names of the nations as they were distributed. And when you get to verse 8, there's a stop to make a description. See, there's a long list of names without very much said about them. But when it says in verse 8, And Cush begat Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. That means to say, he became proverbial, even as it is said. Oh, he left his mark. And he left his mark in many ways that we little suspect. I suppose we've all heard about Bacchus, the god of revelry and the god of wine drinking. 
Well, Bar Cast is simply the son of Cast, Bar Tholomew, Bar Tibius. See, that means the son of Bar. Here we have Bar Cash, Nimrod. The leopard skin, the ivy that he has, and so on, all associated with Nimrod. He stamped himself on paganism, mythology, and all sorts of isms right down the ages. Then he goes on to say, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Now the name for Jerusalem is Salem in this book of Genesis, and Melchizedek is spoken of as the king priest. And he came and blessed Abraham. And there's the two cities. The one means confusion, Babel. The other means peace, Jerusalem. But it's the evil that's dominated the earth at first. And that is the order in which many of these events seem to be. Instead of righteousness being immediately accepted, it is evil sitting upon the throne. It is Cain that lives and Abel that is destroyed at first. When our Saviour came, he was not accepted as king. And when Pilate presented to the people, he gave the same choice, these two. You know, we, we don't uh, perhaps give time enough to things. We say, Jesus on the one side, Barabbas on the other. But would you believe it, you could have spoken of Jesus as Barabbas? Oh, you say, that's terrible. But what's the word Barabbas mean? Bar-Abbar, the son of his father. That's all it was. There were the two sons and the two fathers, the evil and the blessed. And they've been like that in opposition right the way through from the beginning and they're right through to this last book. Another feature in, the, in connection with Babylon that we do well to ponder is in chapter 11. It says in verse 3, And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burned them truly. And they had brick for stone. Well, they couldn't help themselves, of course, because there are no stone quarries in Chaldea, and brick was the necessary thing to use, and that we know is true. But there's a symbol here. They had brick for stone. There are no bricks in the New Jerusalem. They are precious stones, but no bricks. Here you have the very idea that Babylon is doing, substituting, giving us something in the place of the real thing. All the way down the age, believe me, this is as good as the other, it's something cheaper, you know, the idea. Babylon passing off. Supposing I asked you, where in the book of Genesis would you turn to if I said, we're going to speak about Enoch? Well, perhaps you don't fall into the trap. Because, you know, there are two named Enoch. One was the son of Cain, and one was the son of the true line. And then you have Methuselah and Methuselah. And you get two men named Lamech, and both of them are associated with the 70 times 7. Don't you see, stand to the beginning, is Babylon's method of giving the label, but giving you a deception instead. And it's all the way down, so that even in our churches, in our manners of life, in our customs, in the very days of our week, and all these things, many a time, we're perpetuating innocently, without knowing it, that which is going to be fruitful in an evil sense, when it comes right out into the open. Well, that's the way in which we get Babel and Salem, Jerusalem, coming into the story at the beginning. And here in the last chapter, we get them coming right out into the light at the end.
Now, chapter 17 is to a large extent a religious system. And chapter 18 is a commercial city, both associated with the same name and with the same theme. They walk hand in hand. In the um, preparation for this, where we've got the, the um, judgments about the fall, going back just a, a step, in Revelation chapter 15, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvellous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them is filled up the wrath of God. Friends, don't pass that over too quickly. Even though our blood is curdled when we think of some of the dreadful things that are yet to fall upon this earth. And it's no good minimising or shutting our eyes to them. They are dreadful. Isn't it a blessing to know that God himself has said they're the last ones and in them it's filled up. A pledge that never again will this earth be submitted either to such misrule or to such terrific judgments. So there is a, a, an element of mercy in that very statement. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. Now we are taken back in figure to the book of Exodus, not merely the book of Genesis. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And so that begins to link Pharaoh with the judgment upon his gods, and Pharaoh with the plagues that fell upon Egypt, and the plagues that now fall upon are greater than Egypt, and are greater than Pharaoh. And so it's a gathering up together of these things which have been approaching a zenith all the time. Well then further, Verse 4, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee. And then in the next verse, after that I looked and behold the temple. Worship. Temple. Tabernacle. All the way through, the central feature has been worship. We mustn't get the idea that Satan is just busy turning people into murderers and thieves and false witnesses. That's an incidental part and possibly he would avoid it if he could. His one great point is to usurp the place of the Son of God. To have his own worship. And you remember how he tempted the Saviour in Matthew the fourth chapter and was repudiated. And then when the false Christ comes, he accepts. And all the world worshipped the beast and they worshipped the dragon that gave him his authority. Worship. Never forget that the Satan is all the time a creature dealing with worship. And it's false worship that has to be eradicated before righteousness and peace and holiness and eternal life or all those blessings can ever be enjoyed. Therefore it's no mistake when the Ten Commandments do not start with thou shalt do no murder or thou shalt not bear false witnesses thou shalt have no other gods beside me. But if you break that, you might as well give up the rest. For morality is only an outcome of the God you worship. And so we look down this chapter and we see the preparation is being made for the last vials, the last judgments to fall upon this devoted world. 
And then we read these words. Verse 5. And I heard the angel of the water say, Thou art righteous, O Lord. And then in verse 6, they say, They are worthy. And in verse 9, they repented not. It's telling you these things because we draw back a little bit when we think of these judgments that fall. But it's a God who is righteous that's dealing with them. And they are non-repentant. Look what it says here in the verse 10. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast. That again is the thought, the seat of the beast. In uh, Revelation 2 and 3 we have where Satan's seat is. That was at Pergamos. And in the history you discover that the Babylonian priests, they uh, left Babylon and they made their centre in Pergamos. And they left behind them the title Pontifex Maximus, which was left as a legacy to the Roman Emperor and so has now been taken by the Pope all connected right the way down to Babylon. The great breach, of course, the word Pontifex Maximus. A usurpation of the fact that there's one mediator between God and men. Worship again comes into it. And so it says here they are worthy and they repented not. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast and his kingdom was full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. Here's the terrible thing, that they can go through these terrific judgments. They can blaspheme, but they will not repent. And then it leads to Armageddon, verse 16, and he gathered them together into a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. There's a good, good deal of mixed up teaching with regard to Armageddon, I think perhaps it might be wise to turn back just for a moment to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 11. The prophet Zechariah chapter 12, verse 11. In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem, as the morning of Hadadrimmon in the valley of Megiddon. That's, that's the place where Armageddon is, the Megiddon Valley. It's a geographical spot. It's not to be distributed all over the earth and, be, and a, a war taking place somewhere. It's in that valley of Megiddo. And you can look on the map of Palestine and find it. And then, what is also wonderful is that although Megiddo is brought in here, it says they shall look upon him whom they pierced and they shall mourn for him. Two things are going to happen. The battle of Armageddon, with its destructive element for those who are evil. The opening of the eyes of those returning Israelites, who at last shall look upon him whom they pierced, mourn for him, enter into a covenant, and at last be his people. And then we get to Babylon, chapter 16, verse 19. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, when you come to think we've just been reading and seeing pictures of what an earthquake can do, both in Agadir and in Persia. And here it says, the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came into remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent, 
And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Well then that leads us to chapter 17 and the description there given of this woman that is seen being carried by the seven-headed, ten-horned beast that we've looked at in chapter 13. This great organization which is going to be a world rule in Babylonian blasphemy against God is going to be the supporter of this system represented by the woman. Verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of the names of blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns. I'm going to ask you to put your finger into the into the scripture at chapter 13 and I'm going to turn to quite a number of parallel passages to show you the way in which these things are now linked together. That is chapter 17 verse 3. I'll read that again as I didn't prepare your mind for it. I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet coloured beast full of names of blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns. Chapter 13 verse 1 And he stood upon the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns. And on the name of these heads, the name of blasphemy. So there's a link there. Well, in chapter 17, verse 8, And the beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. You've got to take these things a bit slowly, haven't you? What does this mean? He was, is not, and shall ascend. Shall we look back to chapter 13, verse 3 and 4? And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? This is a travesty of the resurrection. He was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit but go into perdition. Then again compare verse 9. Here is the mind which hath wisdom. And you will remember you get the challenge in chapter 13 verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let him have understanding count the number of the beast. In this case, it's the seven heads, which are seven mountains. I think that um, there's a need to be careful about the reading of this, this uh, ninth verse. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth, and they are seven kings. Don't disjoin them. And they are seven kings. Not there are as a separate statement. These mountains are representative of the seven kings. So there's a link there. And then again in chapter 17 verse 13. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Chapter 13 two, And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard. His feet were as the feet of a bear. His mouth was the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and a great authority. Here's a converging. 
these nations give their, these ten kings give their power to the beast, that's from beneath, and Satan gives his power to the beast, that's from above. Well, this is approaching almighty power so far as it's humanly possible to be uh, experienced apart from God. Nothing here to be trifled with. Then again in chapter uh, 17, verse 14, And they shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And in chapter 13, verse 7, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints, and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. You see the contrast. First of all, he has, he has power over the saints and overcomes them. For he apparently is a king of kings and lord of lords. That's in the chapter 13. But in chapter 17, it's reversed. And these shall make war with the Lord, Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is king of kings and lord of lords. And so the parallels go on. And it's this parallelism which is so important for us to keep in mind. In uh, chapter 17.5, to come back to this woman, and upon her forehead was the name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of abominations of the earth. Is there any other city that's called a mother? Yes. The epistle to the Galatians says, Jerusalem, which is above, is the mother of us all, and he's speaking of believers, is the two mothers, and all their families have got a strong family likeness, or they should have. <coughs> there are those who have interpreted this passage as to be <coughs> entirely referring to the Roman Catholic Church. Well, I've got no room for the Roman Catholic Church with all their teaching. But I cannot call the Roman Catholic Church the mother of all the lot because, well, they weren't in existence before Christ couldn't be, could they? It's a daughter of the awful system, very likely. But you see, if you're not careful, you can so go about calling the Roman Catholic Church names as to forget that the Baptist and the Presbyterian and... Um, all the other denominations, including ourselves. If we could only see ourselves as God sees us, he would find that any amount of Babylonianism that will have to be rid before we are presentable in his presence. All the various systems that are at work have got this touch about them. The, the Jesuit missionaries, when they first entered, entered China, and went into a temple, were astonished to find Madonna and child waiting for them there. They didn't have to take the virgin and the infant Christ, it was already there. You get the trinity of Egypt, Isis, Horus and Seb, and you can go to some churches and see hanging down in front of the reading desk a very lovely piece of silk work, and it's got IHS on it. Isis, Horus, Seb. The folks who got it there, thank God, don't know what it means. They tell you it means Jesus, the Saviour of men or something. But all these things are there waiting for the moment to come. For this false prophet to put his finger upon these things and say, you've got it all there. And all the world worship the beast. Because here at last is the real thing. 
Well now, I think I've demonstrated, or the scripture has demonstrated enough for the moment to prove that we cannot explain away Babylon entirely from a point of view of being a mere theological term. It is a place. Jeremiah 50 and 51 speak most pointedly of a city in Chaldea and it's associated with the return of Israel and their final acceptance. Well now if you glimpse at this chart that's hanging in front of you it will save a little time and you will see I've got in the left hand side references to Jeremiah 51 uh, which you'll have to take for granted as we didn't read it just now but it's open to you and on the other side Revelation 17 and 18. Now will you run your eye across? In chapter 51, 13, Babylon is said to be dwelling on many waters, just as we have in chapter 18, 1. Um, chapter 17, 1, sorry. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither. I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. It's rather an odd expression to sit on many waters. But there you have a link. It's said of Babylon in the Old Testament. It's said of Babylon in the New Testament. And the many waters is a symbol in the book of the Revelation and elsewhere of multitudes of people. Multitudes of people, not necessarily the sea. And we are told, if you look at the last verse of this chapter 17, And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth, sitting upon many waters. And then, in chapter, in chapter 31, verse 7, Babylon is represented as having a golden cup. And there again, in chapter 17, verse 4, we have a golden cup filled with abominations which has made the nations of the earth drunk. And verse 7 says they're drunk with her wine. And verse 2 says the same thing, drunk with her wine. And in going for a moment outside of the book of Jeremiah, we have a quotation from Isaiah 47, where she is said to be a lady of kingdoms. And if you look at the verse 18, and the woman which thou sawest, is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. And then look at chapter 18, verse 7 and 8. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her, for she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow, and so on. So there's a similarity there. And then coming back to Jeremiah 51, verse 25, we find the same expression in chapter 18, verse 8, Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord who judgeth her. And then comes the call in, in Jeremiah 51, Come out from among her, my people. And the same thing is in chapter 18, verse 4, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not her plagues. I wouldn't be quite sure that verse 5, For her sins have reached up to heaven, has any reference to the tower that was to reach unto heaven 
uh, but there may be some allusion to it. Then further down, we have the, the very words are quoted from Jeremiah 51, Our sins have reached to heaven. Then we have the emphasis upon the rewarder, even as she has done, chapter 18, verse 6. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her, double according to her works. In the cup which she hath filled, full, filled, filled to her double. Now this is a subject that you might like to pursue yourself. Do you remember in the comforting words to Isaiah, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, for she hath received double. And you'll discover that there is an element in the scriptures. And one passage says, if you will only accept this punishment and you recognize that it is righteous that you should receive double for what you've done, then you'll be restored. Here is the same thing working here. You don't get away with it when you're dealing with God. As the proverb says, the mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceeding small. And here at last, reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her, double according to her works, in the cup which she hath filled, filled to her double. And then we come to the em- emphasis upon recompense. In Jeremiah 50, we read that this evening, verse 29. And in this um, verse 6, we have the word reward. Reward her, even as she rewarded you. Well, that's the same word as the word recompense in many passages. And then we get Babylon is fallen. Uh, Jeremiah 51 and also Isaiah 21. Babylon is fallen, verse 2. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying... Babylon is the greatest fallen is fallen and has become the habitation of devils. Now do remember that it would be better, more true, to leave out the word devils and put the word demons. Not that I know there's any much to be cho- to choose between them, but in the scriptures there is one devil and a multitude of demons. Well this is going to be a habitation of demons and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. What terrible words are used? Concentrating now upon that one city, all this evil, caging it up, getting it ready for extermination. And instead of saying, oh, what a sad thing, chapter 19, verse 1, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Well, what are they saying hallelujah for? It says in verse 3, And again they said hallelujah, for her smoke rose up forever and ever. This is the destruction of Babylon that's causing this. So that, terrible as the judgments are, there's a shout of rejoicing to think that at long last it's come to its terrible end. We're not exulting in the punishment of other poor sinners. But we must see that if God's purposes are not going to be thwarted forever, this terrible thing and the master hand behind it has got at last to be taken and dealt with. And the evil one himself is taken in hand in Revelation 20. We find, or oh, then we've got the words that we, uh, we uh, quoted from Jeremiah 51, 63 and 64 and uh, In verse 21, we've got the repeat, which makes it very obvious we're dealing with the same thing. 
Verse 21, And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. And then it goes on. And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee. Some people, when they hear the voice of harpers, musicians, pipers and trumpeters, wish they'd leave off as it is but I think this will be a, a bit, bit better orchestra. It'll be the real thing this time, friends. And no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be should be found any more in thee. Isn't that a wonderful recognition by God of the value of having a craft in your hand? He's not despising it. He says, that's another tragedy for Babylon. They won't have that. And the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. These are some more no mores. We've got some in the book of the Revelation. No more tears, no more pain, no more sighing, no more death, no more curse, no more bands, no more craftsmen. These are the other things from the other side going to be withheld. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. All is being focused now upon the origin and the mother and the instigator of the persecutions, the pogroms, the inquisitions that have been in the name of God persecuting the truth right the way down the ages focused at last. It's coming to an end, friends. Let's be thankful that it is so. Well, that brings us to the close, in a very rough and ready way, of these two chapters. But let's look back for a moment or two at this city. See what sort of city it is. Uh, verse 10 says, They stood afar off for fear of a torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, Forty-one hour is thy judgment come, and the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise any more. Now look at the merchandise that's being sold here. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and of all tie-in wood and all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble. This is a luxury trade, friend, isn't it? Luxury trade. That's all it is. And a lot of it to do with false worship and cinnamon and odours and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour. All the words used in the book of Leviticus and elsewhere for the worship of God. And wheat Oh, at long last they've got something to eat in a normal way. After all that long list, and beasts, and sheep, and horses, and chariots, there comes the last, and slaves, and the souls of men. Babylon. Slaves, and the souls of men at one end, and gold, and silver, and cinnamon, and odours at the other. That's the city. That's the merchandise that this city has promoted in order to further its own dreadful ends. 
And it says in verse 15, the merchants of these things, which were made rich by her, shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour so great riches is come to naught, and every shipmaster and all the company in ships and sailors and as many as trained by sea stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city, wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness, in one hour is she made desolate. Oh, what a wail's going up. Would it go up from this vicinity? There's plenty of money invested in this part of London, isn't there? Banks and insurances and trading terms. And instead of saying all oh, the dreadful thing that that city stood for, they say, oh, we're going to lose all our business. Dreadful, isn't it? So you've got in chapter 17 the religious aspect and you've got the chapter 18 the commercial aspect. And when they go hand in glove, then you've got everybody, practically. Then it says, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you. And then the symbol is taken, and no more, no more, no more. And then chapter 19. After these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and honour and power unto the Lord our God. And that leads us on to the other city and the other woman, the heavenly Jerusalem, adorned as a bride waiting for a husband. Then comes after that the millennial kingdom. A thousand years with Satan absent. He's let out at the end and the moment he's done so he's proved to be incorrigible. He does exactly the self-same thing that he did at the beginning. And as far as we know that's the end of him. And then we get the conclusion. So next time we meet together we shall pass by without further comment these dreadful passages. I've had to do it, couldn't help myself. But one further thought I would like to leave with you that as far as I've got information, and I hope somebody can put me wise over this, that Baghdad is spreading very much like London spreads, gradually spreading out further and further, and it's creeping straight to the very site of ancient Babylon, and before we know where we are, Babylon will be rebuilt and nobody will know it and think about it. They'll only call it Baghdad. Well, that's a good way of disguising it, you see. It'll be one of the suburbs of Baghdad and Babylon itself will be rebuilt and will become a marketing centre where all the wealth of the world will be flowing before the end comes. And the Middle East is just waking again. It's throwing off the shackles and the sloth of time. They're beginning to say the words that the scripture says they will say. They're looking upon Israel in the land of Palestine. They're saying, come, let's block them out from being a people. All these things are coming to pass and coming to pass rapidly. 
so that if we believe the book, and I trust we all do, surely we can take the words of the Apostle when he said them in another context, now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. For if we are right at all in our surmise that the scripture teaches that the church of the one body is the first to be manifested in glory before the Lord descends from heaven with a shout and is met in the air, then there's every indication that the sands of time are running out and prophetic times are on the very doorstep and all the world is getting ready for the reign of the beast and the Antichrist, but blessed be God, only for a limited time. As the scripture says, for one hour, doesn't mean just maybe 60 minutes, but a very brief time after all that wading through blood and tears. For one hour, and then completely pass away, and he who is the true King of kings and Lord of lords, and that company which is the true bride of the Lamb, shall occupy the scene, and God shall wipe away all tears from all faces. And he that, sat, he that hung upon the cross and said, it is finished, is now represented as sitting upon the throne and saying, it is done. And then we go one stage further into the epistle to the Corinthians. For he must reign until every enemy is subjected to his feet and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And when the last enemy is destroyed, then shall the Son be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. If ever the end justified the means, we can see there that that must be so. We may not be able to explain why this pathway had to be trod. We should have to have the mind of God completely to explain it all. Why God couldn't have put us in our place in glory and left us there, we wait to be told. It may be because we should have been a clockwork universe obeying God because we didn't know anything else. Instead of that, we are not clockwork. Sin turns round and says no to the living God. What a blessed day will be when we all turn round and say yes to the living God and mean it. That is the goal of God. And then it may be we'll look back over the tragic past and say that's the only way which it could have been brought about. May God give us grace as we contemplate some of these dreadful things in the Revelation to be very tender in our heart and our conscience with regard to thinking of these people quoting the well-worn words, there goes whatever your name is, were it not for the grace of God. I think some of us can feel that is only too possible. For this insidious thing doesn't present itself with horns and forked tail. It comes as an angel of light and to deceive, if it were possible, the very elect. There we'll leave it and we hope to go into the question of the millennial kingdom, the first resurrection, and other features which will be far more palatable, I trust, to us than the portion we've had this evening. So we'll leave it there and meet together, God willing, for our next series, next studies, which will be dealing with chapter 19, 20, and 21 and 22, bringing the series to a conclusion. But that doesn't mean to say we'll get that all crammed in one evening. Uh, it may be that these subjects which are waiting us 
will be far more important to us to get examined a bit more in intimate detail, and that's what I hope to do.